0: Last week, Mark chapter 14, uh, what we see is is Jesus praying in this garden. He has his closest friends, his disciples with him, and he's having this moment between him and his heavenly father. And he's he's so stressed out to the point where he's praying, God, if there's any other way to get this done, let's do that. He knows that his time is coming, that he's about to die on the cross. He's about to suffer for our sins. And so he's in this moment of this real tense reality that it's about to happen. And in that moment, Jesus is then betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. And, and so he's handed over where he's beaten, he's mocked, and then eventually led before the government, right? Where Pilate, right? You've heard of this. If you didn't grow up in the church, Pilate is, is this Roman official. Um, he, he's in charge of um, um, handling this sort of district area and they're bringing Jesus before him. And, and, and everyone in the crowd, Mark says, is accusing Jesus of all kinds of different things. Mark even says that none of it actually lined up with one another. So Pilate, we know from history, he, he knows Jesus is innocent, but he goes ahead and asks him, hey, are you the king of the Jews? Everyone's mad at you because they're saying you're the king of the Jews. Are you? And Jesus' response was, you say so. In other words, yes, I am the king of the Jews. I am the son of God. And in that moment, everyone in that crowd lost their mind. They, they wanted Jesus dead. And so one of um, Pi, um, Pilate's um, common practices was to bring out another prisoner and, and then kind of bargain with the crowd. Who do you want me to release? We're going to we're going to capture one. We'll bring one in and then release another. Um, if you didn't if you don't know the story, he brought out this guy named Barabbas, who literally was in jail for rioting and murder. So for Pilate's mind, he goes, no way they want this guy back in society. And So he stands, um, Bar- uh, um, um, Barabbas on one side, Jesus on the other, and says, who do you want? And the crowd collectively said, we want Barabbas. We, we would rather have this rioting murderer among us than Jesus Christ. And, and so he says, fine, releases Barabbas and says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And they collectively said, crucify him, crucify him. And so what takes place next is just more humiliation for Jesus, where he's, he's stripped down, um, he's beaten, he's mocked. The, the whole king of the Jews things, they, they, they bring out these royal robes and dress him as a king, mocking him, put a crown of thorns on his head. And, and typically when, when criminals are crucified, they, they hang above their heads the, the charge that is being against them. So they put above Jesus's head, king of the Jews, and eventually he carries this cross to, to the, the um, Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he's lifted up in between two other thieves. And and, and it's this moment where Mark records Jesus screaming, um, fulfilling prophecy from the Old Testament, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's this moment where God removes his presence from his son so that he can take on the weight of our sin. Mark says that that there was like this, um, in the middle of the day when Jesus was on the cross where everything went pitch black, kind of like an eclipse, but not, right? I hope y'all are getting ready for April. It's about to get crazy here, right? Like state of emergency, right? This is kind of that moment, but not really. He says that everything goes dark. And then this is where we are gonna pick up. Mark 15, verse 37. Keeping all that in mind, here's what happens next. Verse 37, Jesus let out a loud cry, and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite of him saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, "Truly, this man was the Son of God." He said, "Truly." He's witnessing Jesus breathe his last breath and then knowing that the curtain in the temple, the same exact moment, tore from the top to the bottom, the centurion, a guy who's opposed to Jesus, realizes, no, 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 surely this guy is who he says he was. He is the son of God. And I know this sounds kind of crazy, right? And men, I don't know what kind of man you are, husbands, I don't know what kind of husband you are, but like we're talking about a big curtain today, right? And I don't know about you, like I... Um, I'm the kind of husband and man, like, when we move to a new home or my wife, like, watches Chip and Joanna Gaines and gets the idea of, like, decorating, I don't care. Like, I don't care what our curtain looks like. I don't care if it matches the rug and the pillows that we never use. Like, I don't care, right? But my wife does. She loves it. So, therefore, I do care a little bit. But on the inside, I could care less, right? I just don't want it to be expensive, Right? So, what's awesome is we, we see Mark pointing out Jesus' death, and then at the same moment, where we're like, man, that's the most important thing, Mark says, wait, wait, wait. At the same time as he died, a curtain in the temple was torn into. And so, therefore, there has to be some sort of significance with this curtain. Right? We know from the Old Testament, and I'll, I'll try to like, summarize um, the Old Testament as best as I can, but, but God um, at one point chose the nation of Israel to represent um, him and, like, there, and be his people. Right. so he looks at them and says, hey, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. If you walk in obedience to me, I'll bless you. I'll protect you. Right. And I will show the world that like like I am God. And in Exodus, God instructs them to build this um, almost like a portable temple with this tabernacle. Right. It's kind of a weird word, but that tabernacle symbolized God's presence with them. And so this temple, like this portable temple area that they made, God was very specific in how he wanted this thing built. There was a courtyard with multiple like altars around so that people could enter that courtyard and make um, different kinds of sacrifices, do um, different kinds of ceremonial washes and things like that. But inside of this temple area, there is multiple rooms, like small little rooms that had very specific reasons God wanted them to be built. Right, One of the rooms, and, and like I said, listen, I don't care what, like, what the house looks like, but it's important. And God says, like, this, is, this is what I want you to do. In this temple this, where the tabernacle is, there's a room called the holy place. It's the holy place. This was like the first room inside this giant temple area that only priests can go in. These priests would go in and make sacrifices, do all the the rituals that we see that God had set up in the Old Testament. But right on the other side of this room um, was a room called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in that room is where God said, this is where my presence is going to dwell. This room that's separated from the courtyard, separated from the outside walls, separated even from the holy place. This is the holy of holies. This is where I will dwell. And here's the deal. This room where God's presence dwells was separated by a massive curtain. By right? the same curtain that we're reading about in Mark 15 that got torn. Let me give you a little background on this curtain, right? Um, History kind of shows us how massive this room and curtain was. This was a 60 foot, around 60 foot tall curtain, right? That's big, about 30 foot wide. That's big. And about 10 inches or so thick, right? I mean, a thick, big old curtain. Man, can you imagine your wife saying, hey, this is what I want you to hang up this morning? right? And history shows us that it probably took um, around 250 to 300 other priests to come in and put up this curtain and manipulate it to get it in the right position, right? Um, And like, I stress out about that part, right? I can't imagine being on a boom lift, man, right? Hanging a curtain that takes 300 men to move and my wife going, Hey, a little to the left, right? And we're all like in unison trying to move this thing to the left. And then for me to say, is that good? No, no, a little to the right. And we were all 300 of us move it to the right. Okay, perfect, right? That stresses me out. But this curtain, big, massive, beautiful curtain. Exodus says that it was woven together with purple, blue, kind of scarlet yarn and, and had in the middle of it um, a, a design of a giant cherub, a giant angel. Now, ladies, I don't know if that's the vibe in like feng shui of your house, like a massive curtain with the angel on it, but that's what the temple was rocking, right? That's what this huge, beautiful, um, massive curtain. And the reason behind, behind having this curtain, separating God's presence in the holy of holy places, uh, separating it from everyone else, is pretty straightforward. It's showing that God is not like us, that he is holy, which means set apart, which means different, that he is righteous in all things, that he is holy, that he is powerful, that we are not, that we are unrighteous, unholy, that that we are, are vile and corrupt. Therefore, God has to separate his holiness from our unholiness. So this curtain, it separates the common, sinful, unholy man from a perfect, holy, and righteous God. But there was this time, according to the Old Testament, right, there's this time that, that God had set up where once a year, the curtain would, would be moved aside a little bit, and one priest would be allowed to enter in. Let me read Hebrews 9, 6-7 that explains everything that we're going to be talking about today. Hebrews 9, 6-7 says, With these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly. They would perform their ministry. So the room right before the presence of God, the Holy of Holies room, the priests would go in and out of there freely. They'd go in, make sacrifices, do rituals, right, ceremonial washings. They would do ministry in that first room. But, verse 7 says, Only the high priest alone enters the second room. He does that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people who had committed in ignorance." So here's what would happen. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God with, like, no, not missing, um, going in without blood so that he can go in, sacrifice for his sins, and then also cover the sins of his people. He, he would sacrifice for, for his sins and for the sacrifice of the sins of his people. And here's what's even crazier as I, was, as I was studying for this week. What would happen is, right, remember, God doesn't mess around with his holiness. Like God is a holy, righteous, perfect God. And he, and he doesn't play around. And, and so like if, if you, if when the high priest would go in, they would tie a rope around, this is history says, would tie a rope around his foot, put bells around his waist so that they can hear him moving around in, behind that curtain right? He's doing the rituals. He's doing the sacrifice. But if all of a sudden they stopped hearing those bells jingling, right? And they would kind of tug on the rope. If they didn't feel a tug back, they're like, God killed that dude and let's drag his body out. Because God didn't mess around with his, with his, with his holiness. He, he set very specific rules, very specific ways to honor him in that sacrifice, And up front, that sounds kind of harsh, right? It sounds kind of like, that doesn't sound like a, a God who's a loving and gracious God, but in reality, it actually paints the truth that he is. This wasn't set up to beat down on man. Everything was made so that when man participated in worshiping God in this way, it would show nothing but honor and praise and respect towards this righteous God. And so this curtain, the room, the sacrifice, the only being able to be um, in that room by one man paints this picture for us. And this is the picture. God is holy, we're not, we're separated from God and man in the Old Testament days can only be in his presence through a high priest once a year who would sacrifice on our behalf and hopefully we be forgiven. This shows us that, that God is holy, but he was unreachable only once a year through somebody else could people pray throughout the year for sure for sure they could but god in that time was on what was uh wasn't accessible only through a high priest and listen to me here's here's now moving back to mark that changes the day jesus died on the cross That changes the day that Jesus died on the cross. Going back to Mark chapter 15, 37-39, this is what Mark says. Jesus let out a loud cry, breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Mark specifically said this massive curtain that we've been talking about this morning was ripped from top to bottom. I want you, if you have your Bible, underline that because that is huge. As Jesus was suffering on the cross and dying as a sacrifice for our sins, the moment he died, I mean the instant, this massive, remember, like humongous 60 foot, 30 foot, 10 inches um, thick tore from the top to the bottom. And what that's showing us, right? It's not showing us that it tore from the bottom top. It's not like a bunch of husbands got together and said, we're sick of moving this thing, right? Like, let's rip it in part. We'll throw it away. Our wife will never know. It's, it's showing that this wasn't a man thing. That man all of a sudden said, you know what? We want access to God. That's not how it works. This is a, a only thing that God can do kind of moment where he rips the curtain top to bottom and he's showing us that the moment his son Jesus died on the cross, he tore that curtain down symbolizing that God wants us, he wants mankind who has been separated from him to have full and complete access to him through the sacrifice of his son. That God is no longer separated but through Jesus who died on the cross, we have full access to our heavenly father. And now we are free to approach God and be forgiven of our sins. There, there's three things I, I learned in my study this week about the significance of this curtain being torn. Number one, if you're taking notes, that here's, here's a part of why is this important. We no longer need to go through a man to get to God. We no longer need a man to, get to, to go through to get to God. This curtain stood as a barrier, right? And, and only once a year through the high priest. Could we approach God? So when God tore it down, he showed us, listen, you don't need man. You don't need religion. Like You need you know, my son. So we have free access to God. We can humbly approach him in repentance. We don't have to go through. So um, I grew up in California, and I uh, grew up in a like, very predominant Hispanic community. A lot of my friends were Catholic growing up. Right. And in the Catholic religion, to be forgiven of your sins, you have to go to the priest or you sit in a box with the priest and and he's on that side and you're on this side. And you say, man, priest, I've done a lot of things. Would you forgive me? And so you share all your sins with this man. and, And then this priest goes, "Okay, cool, I'll lift him up. And your sins are now forgiven. Listen, that is not the way things get done. What what God is showing us, that we don't need another human being, we need God, we need Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, that's it. Listen, 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. It is only through Jesus that we can approach God for forgiveness. Jesus himself said, hey, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through who? me. So he is the way. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says this, that he holds his priesthood permanently. That's Jesus. He is the ultimate priest, the high priest. Therefore, he can save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. So we go to God through Jesus, not a human being but, and, and not a middleman, but through Jesus Christ. Now, here's the deal. This doesn't mean, like, some of you are like, well, cool, why do we have a pastor? Right, like, why do we, why do we have pastors at churches? That doesn't eliminate pastors. Matter of fact, this kind of, this kind of elevates pastors' roles and our roles as Christians. So the Bible calls you, if you have um, a relationship with Jesus, you have surrendered your life in repentance to Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you, here's what the Bible calls you, the priesthood of believers, But here's the cool thing about this and what God's trying to show us is we don't go through a priest to get to God, right? We have Jesus Christ, but now that we have Jesus Christ, that you have salvation for your sins, you know the gospel, you are now the priesthood of believers, therefore you go and you show people what you have gained access to because of Jesus Christ. You go and you share the good news that, hey, the curtain has been torn, we have access. You go and you share the hope that you have gained in Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is your mission as a believer. That is your mission and your role as a believer. What a beautiful moment this is. God shows us by tearing this current, we no longer need to go through man to get to God. We have Jesus Christ. The second thing that we learn uh, by God tearing this current in is we no longer need to sacrifice animals to be forgiven. We no longer need to do the the sacrificial system to be forgiven, right? In the Old Testament, God gave us, mankind, a temporary way to be forgiven of our sins, right? All throughout the Old Testament law, you'll see that God told his people, if you bring a perfect and pure animal, right, not the janky runt, right, that like no one wants, but you bring the best of your flock and you present that as a sacrifice to God, you would be forgiven of your sins, and year after year, people would gather and they would sacrifice um, their animals at the altar, the pure and, and, and the best of the best that they had. Now, here's the good news for us. Jesus dying on the cross eliminates the process for us because he died as the ultimate sacrifice, the lamb of God who was slain. He's the ultimate sacrifice who was altogether holy, altogether perfect, altogether pure and without blemish. I don't know about you, but I thank God for that. There's not enough goats and lambs in California to cover my sins. Like, can you imagine like how nasty this altar would be if week after week we had to bring in the best of our flock and sacrifice an animal. But here's like the, the bigger picture of all this. The fact that the curtain was torn top to bottom is good news because not only we have access, but now we have an ultimate way to be forgiven of our sins that covers it once and for all. First John two, one through two says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus, the the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only ours, but also for those of the whole world. Listen, Jesus didn't just die on the cross. This is the familiar thing, right? Like did Jesus die on the cross? Yes, he died on the cross for my sins. Listen, no, it's bigger than that. Like, don't, don't let this become like a mundane thing in your mind. As a Christian, Jesus died for the sins of the world. He broke the system that we could never fully follow and died as the ultimate sacrifice. And through his blood and his blood alone that was shed, all sin for all of mankind, past, present, future has been covered and whoever calls on his name will be saved. This is the beautiful thing that God is showing us as he tears that curtain down. And the third thing that God shows us when he tore, he tore the curtain is that this, this is him opening a door for everyone to come in. The door is open for everyone to come in. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. I mean, that's huge, Boldness. That, that's a huge thing for, for the author of Hebrews to say. We now have boldness to enter the sanctuary. Because remember, back then, before Jesus, you, we, us common people, we couldn't even get in there. And we, like, only one man once a year can actually get to the presence of God. But now, because of Jesus, on this side of the gospel, we can enter God's presence with boldness. Verse 20 says, He inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Here's what I love about this, and the beautiful thing about Christianity. In Christianity, right, only in Christianity does the God of the story invite people to draw near to him. Remember what I said like before Jesus dying, the curtain being torn by God was, was, was God showing he, that he's unapproachable, but now everyone who would look and turn to him has this open invitation to come. So we approach God with boldness, even when we're messed up, even when we're, we're, we have baggage, even when we have fear right, or doubts, we approach God with boldness. Listen, like e- every religion in the world, the story of their religion, the story of their God, outside of Christianity, the, outside of Christianity, the, the religion, the, the God of their story, and how you get to that God, is that you have to earn your way there. Like you, you, outside of Christianity, you have to earn your way to that God. How do you do that? By being a good person, doing good deeds, showing up, giving money, sacrificing. And hopefully by the end of your lifetime, you have done enough good to overshadow the bad of your life. And hopefully you get to that spot when that God says, okay, I accept you. But with Christianity, we worship the one and true God. Who, who looks at his creation, looks at us in brokenness and rebellion and sinfulness, looks at us and says, man, I love my people. Therefore, I will leave my throne, put on flesh and go down to them. Walk amongst them, be one of them, feel what they feel, be tempted as they're tempted, but I will do so without falling. Christianity is the only story where the God of the story comes down, puts on flesh, lives, never sins, and then goes to the cross in perfection, lays it down on the altar, sacrifices himself to cover our sin. Christianity, the God that we serve, is the only one who would die for his people and then tell them to come to him. He comes down and brings us up with him. Why? Because, listen, we can't earn our way to God's presence. We cannot earn our way to heaven. The temptation is to believe that. The temptation, and like, listen, I'm I'm, I'm an outsider, okay? I'm, I'm not from the South, if you can't tell. I'm not from here, all right? But what I've learned about being in the South for 13 years is there's a temptation to believe because I'm a good person and I go to church and I give money and I'm better than my cousin Joe who's a crackhead, right? And like he's not even invited to Thanksgiving, right? If you're that cousin Joe, I'm glad you're here, right? We all got like the crazy cousin Joe that's not invited next week, right? Right, he always shows up to Thanksgiving, doesn't bring food but eats everything and takes like to-go containers with him, right? No one wants him around but he shows up. Anybody have a Cousin Joe? Everybody has that, right? If you're that Cousin Joe, man, I love you, <laughs> Don't take as much to go next time. But the temptation is believe as long as I'm a good person, I go to church, I'm better than so-and-so, then I'm good, me and God are in good standing. And we begin to believe the lie that the standard is to be better than other people. Can I tell you that our standard isn't other people? Can I tell you what our standard is? Say yes. I'm going to tell you anyways. The standard of heaven is holy. It's perfection. Why is that the standard? Because that's who our God is. He is holy, set apart, different. He is perfect. He is righteous. There's nothing evil, wicked, dirty about him. And that is the standard that is the standard and so the story of christianity that we like the truth of the gospel and why it's important that we realize that jesus didn't just die on the cross for sins that we don't breeze past this curtain the the whole point of the gospel is god is looking at us saying there is no way to me but i will make a way and because of my son's sacrifice, you now have full access to me. You, you can't cover your own sin with good deeds, but my son covered it for you. And if you just turn in repentance and humbleness and ask for forgiveness, you have access to salvation, to hope, to joy, life, and life eternal. But it only comes through my son Jesus. Jesus. And so I'm gonna have Tyler come up. How How do we respond to this? Listen, the only way that we can accurately respond to this message, to what Jesus did, is to acknowledge him for who he is. Who is Jesus? The son of God. The Bible says the lamb of God that was slain. And because of who he is, we must accept who we are. We are broken, sinful people who deserve to face our own penalty of sin. But thank God we don't have to because Jesus did it for us. But then Jesus looks at us, and the offer that God is extending, the, the offer of grace and mercy and salvation in a new life, an eternal life, is only for those who would repent and surrender to Jesus as their Lord and King. So how do we respond? If you've never done that, know that Jesus is calling you right now. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open it, I would come in and be with him. Maybe, maybe you've been in church your whole life. Maybe you've you you like you know something, so like, man, I know that passage. You know about Jesus, but listen, just knowing about Jesus doesn't get you saved. You have to know him personally. So maybe you've played this church game where I show up, I sing the songs, I give my money, I'm better than Joe. And Jesus is looking at you, going, man, listen, you don't know me. You've never surrendered to him as the Lord. The boss, the king of your life. Family, listen. How do you respond to this? You respond with humbleness and say, Jesus, I'm yours. Forgive me of my sin. Your will be the will of my life. You're the God, the king. I surrender. I surrender. Family, stop playing a game. Like church game is, one, it's boring. Like why would would you want that to be the game that you play? There's more joy to be had than just showing up and sitting in a chair. But that joy comes from knowing Jesus. Not just as Savior who got you out of hell, but as King. The one who died for you who suffered, bled, died, and rose again for you. Say yes to him today. Stop playing a game. Say yes. Some of you, you are believers. You have a relationship with Jesus. How do, how do we respond as those who like, man, I know Jesus, I, I have a relationship with him. How do we respond? Listen, I don't, here, here, here's some ways. I'm not the Holy Spirit, I got him. I don't know what's going on in your life, but, but how do we respond? Maybe there's some sin in your life that, that is just whooping your tail. And listen, I get it, we have a spiritual enemy who is constantly on the attack with us. And we, we live in a world that is constantly putting pressure on us to be unfocused of the mission, to focus on ourselves and our families rather than living our life to glorify Jesus. So so how do we respond? If there's a sin, if there's something that you're just hanging on to, you repent of that. You come humbly and with boldness to the throne of God that God has given you access to and say, God, I'm repenting of my sin. I haven't been living for you. I haven't been living for your glory. Here's the sin that I'm struggling with, Lord. Give me strength to overcome. God, I want to live for you. you. You come in repentance. Or maybe you're, you're a believer and you have a relationship with Jesus, but there's some hurt, there's some pain in your life that you're, that you're experiencing. Approach the throne and say, God, look, I'm hurting. I need you to bring healing to whatever that area is. God, I need you. Approach his throne. He's given you access. Maybe there's, there's some, a, a physical need that you have. Man, approach the throne with it. Maybe there's some wisdom of like, God, I don't know what to do next. Or even, God, I have doubts about you. I have doubts about the faith. Approach the throne with boldness, knowing that's why he's given you access. Run to him. Run to him. Seek him. He tore the curtain so that you could come to him. And here's the beautiful thing about being on this side of, of the cross. And the whole curtain thing. Here's the beautiful thing. In the Old Testament, God's presence was in that room. But now because of Jesus and the curtain being torn, the Bible says that, that it teaches us that when you say yes to Jesus, you, you become a born again believer that the Holy Spirit of God doesn't dwell in a box. He doesn't dwell in a building. Now he dwells within the believer so that God is always with you. So in other words, believers in the room, the God of the universe is with you always. How much, of, how much time are you spending in His presence? How much are you depending on Him on a day-to-day basis? How do you respond to this? With humbleness and repentance and you approach the throne of grace. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday.